Welcome to the True Worth Tech Talks podcast. Each episode, we talk to a senior level tech or data expert about people, projects, products, or platforms. My name's Sam Mickelson, founder of True Worth, a talent solution business that helps you build tech teams. We search, we engage, and we secure the very best tech talent for our clients, helping them to hire permanent staff, interim contractors, or deliver projects via the True Worth Collective, a unique, inclusive network of highly skilled and experienced SMEs who help organizations to manage and deliver tech and data projects. Thank you for finding us and tuning in. You can find out more at trueworthconsulting.com. Links to all our social feeds are in the episode description. Without further delay, let's get going and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, Sarah, how are you doing? Sam, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Thank you for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, listen, we, we've we've been talking uh, over the last few weeks about what you do. We've been talking about the True Worth Collective, how we're trying to build this inclusive network of people that can offer, um, you know, digital services project management, business analysis, you know, we're dealing with CTOs that are trying to overcome big digital transformation problems, challenges. And what we keep coming back to is, is people. Um, and what was quite nice in the event that we did last week, we were talking about why or how companies can get it wrong. And Bjorn was talking, Bjorn Johansson, who's part of our network, was talking about it's all very well bringing in different bits of technology and and getting all the right people in place and and processes, but it's about engaging the people. And that's where you come in, isn't it? You are that change management person that actually gets people going. Am I right? Yeah, definitely. So um, I, I worked in kind of in and around projects for many, many years, more than I'd like to. Like 10 years too. 10 years experience. yeah it's probably more than that actually Is it? <laughs> I just I just try not to put too close <laughs> of a number to it um but yeah it, I think a lot of people um think the, the answer to my prayers in in business is to buy the new technology off the shelf and I'm going to open it out of its pretty box and it's all going to make our lives better and actually if you've not engaged the right people if you've not found out what really are the problems that they're facing in the day-to-day lives um, and you know getting your business to be as efficient as possible um, you could just be um, attempting to stick a plaster on something that's much much deeper and it and it may not solve the problem at all yeah. Um, so yeah get being the person that you know does the talking and gets people to the table and make sure that you know are we doing the right thing here and is this going to actually be the answer to your prayers or possibly going to be your worst nightmare um, it's the best thing to do is to, you know, get that person in the room to make sure that the conversations are being had. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you, and you, as we just sort of touched on, okay, you said you actually got more than 10 years experience, <laughs> but you've, you've, you've worked with, um, you know, on digital products, on projects, change management across financial services, shared services, retail, supply chain, You've worked for well-known retailers that we would all know, like Morrison's, the co-op, um, and also Walmart. 
And more recently, you've you've kind of segued back into it's still kind of retail, but it's more from a consultancy point of view, isn't it? Yeah. So I've 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 been a consultant for many, many years, but under someone else's business, essentially. Uh, and so doing that, I've worked with some massive, massive names uh, delivering projects for them. And yeah, a couple of years ago, I decided it was time to kind of do things my own way. Um, so I went into consultancy myself, worked with um, you know a few smaller businesses and yeah. helping with some of their challenges. Um, so yeah, it's been uh, it's been an interesting journey, but it's definitely one that I'm glad that I've I've started on. Good, excellent, and and because do you do you think that your role as a change management consultant anyway, whether you're going into a company in a permanent role or whether you're going in contract do you think it just sort of lends itself to that type of work where you've got to kind of win people over quickly yeah definitely um yeah. I mean because I have worked as a consultant for many years when I've been delivering projects um even though I was employed by um, a firm mm. of consultants at the time um you've only got a limited amount of time to make an impact so if your statement of work covers a year or two years if you've not made an impact and not given some positive return within that period of time um you're not likely to see a renewal on that contract yeah. so um one of the absolutely key things that i really really believe in is that your relationships are worth so much when it comes to um those kinds of things so being able to go in quickly and make you know positive changes in terms of the business but also build the relationships with the stakeholders so that you are the trusted advisor in there and you can um you know work with that customer's best interests at heart um i think that really really helps um to have that mindset from the very beginning even if you are going in as a full-time employee um because you want to deliver value and you want to be of service regardless of whether you're you know a consultant or not yeah, and it's and I, I think it's it's massively important to get that 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 winning people over bit like really really nailed down, isn't it? And that we're going to be talking about obviously the importance of what you do, stakeholder management, and that's just really one part of what you do, isn't it, Sarah? There's so many other things that we could probably talk about, but I think that today we'll cover a few things around sort of winning trust with internal stakeholders. We talk, we're going to talk about emotional intelligence and why that's so important. Um, naturally, we're going to talk about agile versus waterfall. I think that's something that you've you've come across more recently. Um, we're also going to talk about workshops and what makes a good workshop. Um, we're going to hear about, you know, what you've learned uh, working for different businesses, both UK and US retailers, and if there is a bit of a difference. And we're also going to, touch on the key differences between managing those internal customers and stakeholders and external suppliers or external stakeholders. Um, and, and also something that's really, I think, relevant nowadays more than ever, it's managing those fractional teams and having to juggle, um, not always being able to be on site and having to do a lot of stuff over Teams and Zoom and things like this. So there's a, there's a few, there's quite a lot to unbox there, isn't there? But I, I want to stress that this is just one element of what you do, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, like that we've kind of touched on, I've spent so long around um, 
particular retail and supply chain um, data. Um, I could talk to you for hours and hours about the purchase order process, for example, and accounts payable and receivable data and, uh, and things like that, which are very specific to retail. But I know in the collective, we've got some absolute um, wizards when it comes to data and data um, isn't actually my strongest suit. Uh, relationships and customer management is definitely the thing that I'm most passionate about. So, so yeah, it is just one aspect of, of what I do, but it is something that I'm really, really passionate to talk about. And um, t- tell us what else you're passionate about uh, away from work. Uh, tell us, tell us what you uh, what you get up to when you're not managing stakeholders. <laughs> what else are you managing? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. So when I'm when I'm not managing stakeholders, yeah, I, uh, I well, so the the basic level is that uh, there's me, my husband, and two animal children, <laughs> a cat and a dog. Uh, so I'm managing that relationship quite closely at the moment. The uh, the cat's been an only child for twelve years, and he's oh. got a, a puppy as of one year old to content. Oh really? Now, so, okay. Um, How's that going? That, it's funny actually because I was thinking about um, a subject for a podcast being how learning to communicate with a dog helps <laughs> you <laughs> communication with your stakeholders. So maybe that's a podcast for Brilliant. another day yeah. <laughs> of clearness and conciseness of your communication. Um, but yeah, so that's that's uh, one part of my my life that I have to uh, manage and, quite closely as well. <laughs> and you're and you're based in Yorkshire, aren't you? So you know a lot of the clients you've worked with have been those retailers in and around the north of England, haven't they? Yeah, definitely. So um, Leeds, Bradford, Manchester, um, generally there's always a presence in London. Um, But then, um, again, because I've worked in consultancy for so long, um, I've done remote working for many, many, many years. That's not a new thing to me at all. Um, I've done that for the past decade. Um, So, yeah, people um, out in the States or in Hong Kong, um, yeah, that's it's just um, you kind of just adapt to the way of working to make sure you're online for a smallish window of time together. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's just kind of par for the course. I think when you're working consultancy, that you have to spread yourself across various time zones and customers around the world. I can imagine following the sun and all of that. Um, so let's let's kick off then, and let's talk about um, that initial. Um, you know, you've you've just landed a contract or you just started a contract. It's it's day one and you're you're on site and you know you've got to go and engage with some stakeholders. Um what what do you do first of all? How do you go about winning over or not winning over, but just sort of, you know, winning trust with people? What where where do you start? Yeah, and I know it's a really um, sort of famous phrase in sales, which is you've got to get the no like and trust of your customers. Um, and I hate just spitting out a bit of sales jargon, but um, but it's really true. Um, but you don't have to do it in such a salesy way. Um, I think if you just genuinely care about and want to help your customers, um, that just happens organically without you having to give it that much thought. Um, if there's one tip I would ever give anyone when it comes to building relationships is you really don't build the same relationship um, over the phone to what you do on a video call over a video call to what you do by sitting in person and having a coffee together um you you know 10x your output um, by just sitting together um in a room even if you know you only can do it once a month or once a quarter um which sometimes what we did with with clients that are out in the states for example um 
it's worth it. It's well worth it to get the relationship of of actually working together and you get to know yeah. each other just a little bit better. Um, so that's definitely one of my kind of top tips is is to be present, just to be there as as much as you can. Um, it'll definitely help in terms of just building the relationship much much quicker yeah. than if you try to just do it over you know email for instance um very difficult to build a relationship over email um so yeah that would definitely be my first suggestion to anybody is to to get that face time if you can and i guess, and i guess it it depends on the um type of project or where you are in the project if it's kind of um if the project's failing maybe or the last person that was kind of doing what you're doing has kind of, you know, um, pissed a few people off or, or, or the consultancy you're working for has made a few mistakes. That can be quite tricky, I guess. How do you, how do you sort of handle situations where it's not quite going so well? Yeah. So it's funny actually, because quite a lot of what I've done in the past is following something bad that's happened. And then I've gone in afterwards. Um, And it's usually where a relationship's broken down somewhere along the line. Um, so in those situations, again, getting FaceTime, you just can't overstate how important that is. Mm. Um, but listen, really listen and be and care about what people, because they're going to be ranting probably and raving yeah. Yeah. and saying, and here's another thing you did wrong, or, you know, and your company did this. Um there's just no point in, in trying to push back on those comments because you're just going to create more of an argument. You've just got to listen and see it from that person's point of view that they feel failed in some way, whether they're right or they're wrong. Their yeah. perception is that they've been let down, they've been failed. Yeah. So you just need to listen to them very, very carefully and understand where is that concern coming from? What has happened? What was the root cause of the problem that's caused the breakdown? Um, and just really care about giving them, uh, you know, a better service. Um, I think in the world of project management, because it's not an ongoing relationship, you come and do a project, there's a start, there's a middle, there's an end, and then you'll probably move on to something else. Um, the relationship part it, as the ongoing sometimes gets forgotten about. Mm. Um, because I tend to do a lot of projects where I hand it over to a BAU. So um, implementing new software, for example, you need to hand that over in a fantastic state so that in the BAU world, when um, the functional um, stakeholders and, and managers are dealing with that customer, um, they're coming to them as a happy customer, not yeah. a customer who's already angry before they get into the BAU process. I can imagine then, and that must be, so that 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 effectively then is a lot of legwork that you have to do then to make sure the handover's perfect. And and then you need to have that legacy there for that for the project to be handed over to the right person. It's going to be looked after. Yeah, definitely. One of the biggest um, things that I think is super important when it comes to that kind of a project where you're handing it over to someone um, is to make sure that just the little things go a long way. So um, say two weeks before handover, there's some communications that go around so everyone knows, okay, this is what's happening on this day and this is where you can find your documentation and there's some walkthrough videos here. I'm a big yeah. fan of what of recording walkthrough videos at the moment. Um, it's just another way we used to just produce reams of documents didn't we and back in the day. The technology is so much better for that these days, it, isn't it? Exactly. And you don't need to be a genius to just record a five minute clip. You can use Teams, you can use Zoom, um, just open a meeting with yourself, record your screen and just talk just talk as you're doing it yeah um, it 
people taking information in different ways. Some people will want to read it. Um, actually, I'm one of the people that want to read it because I just want to get to the point. Um, but then I might go back and watch the video afterwards. So it's always good to have those different ways to give that information to people so that when you do come to the handover, they will inevitably have questions. And that's why a hyper care period is always good just to do a little bit of handholding before you you know take the stabilizers off and, and let them go. But I like you know, that. Having the comms is, I is like a... what you said there, hyper care. Mm. Yeah. Where's that, where's that from then? Yeah, so it's I think it's it's fairly um, sort of common terminology in terms of um, when you've released um, a piece of software or you've um, you've got to the point where it's technically the end um, mm. of the um, the project it, as it was, and you're handing over to the next team to take it on. So probably a functional team in the, in the world of business as usual are going to carry yeah. on um, maintaining and managing that customer relationship. Um, the hypercare periods there, you tend to set a period of time and it depends on the project as to how long that could be. Two to four weeks is usually average, I would say. It does depend on the on the type of project though, because it might it could be longer if you needed. Yeah. Um, and it's just to make sure that there's someone there available. So when people forget how to log in, you can help them to help themselves. So you tell them how to do it rather than fixing it for them. Um, if there were any bugs in production, you get on them quickly because you're still in that hypercare period. You get them sorted out quickly and, and, and back out to the customer so that it doesn't cause them any downtime. And it's just that period of time where you've not fully stood down the project team. You're still being there, being extremely supportive um, and just making sure that, yeah, you're on hand if there are any questions or concerns or people are getting a little bit stuck. It might be that you need to do a couple of workshops at that point to kind of say, what's the feedback? How are you finding it after week one, week two? Um, just to make sure that that experience of the customer the whole way through is a positive one. It's not just oh, you, you handed over and you left us to our own devices and then we didn't know what to do. So it's a, it's a really thorough process, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think um, it, it, the best projects are the ones where um, you do that sort of um, thorough customer care all the mm. way through to the end. Um, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your you think your business is it doesn't matter if your business is selling groceries or if your business is moving freight around the world or whatever your business is you're a customer business at the end of the mm -hmm. day yeah. um, and you have internal customers as much as you have external customers um, so if you can't get that bit right you're not going to do well in this world of business so um, I think that's something that um, is really cool in terms of the way I approach things is that I really put that first amongst everything else to make sure that everyone's getting the best service possible what comes across when you're talking there you mentioned a few things where you mentioned care for the mm. customer being quite genuine about it and it feels like you've got that care that passion for the industry how did you get into retail and supply chain in the first place can you sort of just you know wind back a little bit to think when you started in, yeah. in 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 doing this i can actually so um i started um actually my career started out of university as an intelligence analyst in law enforcement so i worked for west Yorkshire police uh, as okay. an intelligence analyst yeah. Yeah. Um, and i truly loved that job i really really did um i loved making a difference and and feeling like i was doing something that was really valuable um the only reason i left that job was um there was a, a restructure going on and I was fairly confident that there were going to be some redundancies come in. And because right. it was on kind of a points system or something like that at the time, 
Um, length of service was very important and I was a new graduate, so I had no length of service at all. Um, so I put my CV um, on, I think it was job board from like 15 years ago or something. Right. Um, and within a couple of days, someone contacted me uh, and asked me if I'd ever heard of recovery audit. And I said, okay. no. And they said, do you want to find out? And I said, no, why not? <laughs> And so I went to uh, I went to meet uh, a guy who um, I'm still very, very good friends with, who uh, essentially used my analytical skills to bring me into um, managing audit projects for these retail customers. Um, So through there, I got to um, work with lots and lots of um, retailers, did a fair bit of public sector as well. But mostly retail was kind of my thing um, because it was a very intense customer relationship and the projects were long. Um, so the projects would be sort of a year ish, um, and then you would obviously pitch for the next um, the next project to do the next sort of x number of years, sure, yeah. um, and and the whole cycle would repeat itself if you if you were successful. So, so yeah, um, so that's um, sort of how I got into it. And what's what you know for people that don't know, and I'm 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 one of them. What what is recovery audit then? Yeah, so recovery audit, it's um, it's something that is done by all kinds of um, businesses really grocery retail is just one of them um, but there's all kinds of industries um, looking at um, the transactions between the business and their suppliers and making sure that they've been um, executed correctly so where there have been overpayments uh-huh. and undercharges and things like that re- um, going back and rectifying them um, so it means collecting huge amounts of data essentially and turning them into um, bespoke auditing software um, so that's kind of how I got quite into the data side of things and really understanding um, supply chain and, and uh, retail data very very well because you've got to kind of pull all these different um, facets of the the commercial relationship together right so, yeah. okay and that's where your analytical skills came into play um, yeah. and yeah. then you move and then you moved more into sort of change management then over the over those years yeah <laughs> so from doing that I ended up then moving more into um a very strange job title but business development but actually it was an onboarding manager so onboarding right. customers um into um new pieces of software um so um it was in the similar sort of industry but where it was software as a service as opposed yeah. to um the, the traditional audit projects um so it would yeah involve working with um a lot of this is where there were kind of more um public sector involved as well lots and lots of kind of finance stakeholders um sometimes commercial um a lot of procurement stakeholders as well um to kind of make sure that they were in a position to be able to share data going through sort of infosec and things like that um and just kind of taking them through the whole process of onboarding them into the software helping them use it um being able to show them how to use the outputs from um the software to be able to change their business processes and things like that so you you were then sort of in that eye of the storm of being able to understand what the client's overall objectives were what they're trying to achieve and then being able to actually be that middle person between tech teams and what they're trying to achieve and helping them get there basically Yeah, pretty much. So um, it's a bit of a, I think it's always been a bit of a strange role that I've done really, because I've come from an analytical background, but I don't consider myself a business analyst. Mm. Um, But, um, but yeah, essentially that that's right. Being the person that can kind of translate, if you like, what the customer is trying to achieve to 
people who are actually technically able to onboard them into the software because that's not me I'm not the technical person um, and be able to actually have that conversation to make those things work together um, so yeah that's that does bring me kind of the, the eye of the storm as you say and that brings us to talking about emotional intelligence I think mm. because it feels like you've you've come from this analytical kind of role into a more customer facing role business development you're starting to learn about sales and i think when you when you any any role where you've got to work with people i think you need a high degree of emotional intelligence so bringing that now to to your current position and what you're doing day to day you know obviously it's important but why why is it so important in the role that you do now sarah yeah, well, I think part of um, being emotionally intelligent is obviously not about yourself, it's about other people. Um, and being able to pick up on people's cues that they give you that are potentially nonverbal. Um, so you can tell if there's resistance because there's always resistance to change. Just need to accept that it will be there. Yeah. <laughs> Even the person that's, that thinks they're very open to change there will be some resistance at some point um, and some people find it hard to express what that is it, it's more just the feeling that they have mm. um, so I think by being really emotionally aware um, you can identify resistance you might not be able to know what it is but you can identify where, where you're getting resistance so it might be as simple as someone never answers their emails <laughs> it yeah. might be um, someone... welcome to my world yeah I <laughs> there's always one it's always the one person that never has their emails um but yeah there's it's something like that or um it just can be certain things said in passing um it might be you know certain turns of phrase that they do like i'm not putting my name to that um it, it shows you that they're fearful about something um yeah it, it might not be the change itself it might be i'm fearful for my job security Therefore, I don't want to be associated with a change because change is risk. There's always risk. You can't say that there isn't. Um, you can minimize it as much as you like, but it's there. Um, and so just by being emotionally aware, you can try and find different ways to connect with that stakeholder um, and make sure that, you know, especially if they're a key stakeholder and you need their participation, yeah. um, to make sure that you are really making an effort on that no like, and trust you might need to find different ways. This is where the, the, the physical coffee or maybe even something a bit stronger <laughs> might be worthwhile because you can just spend time with the person and mm -hmm. get to understand what their drivers are, what their fears are, what they like. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the way they like to be communicated to. Um, and so if you bring all those things together, it helps you bring your stakeholders along with you on that journey, um, even though there might be some resistance there. It, it reminds me very much of recruitment and how we work as recruiters because we are having to ask questions, listen to feedback, understand and spot those social cues, know when to kind of back off a candidate or a client to, you know, not, not make them feel uncomfortable, but help them to make a decision. And it feels quite similar in a way um, to kind of, pick up when there's a bit of resistance I guess yeah definitely because yeah. if especially if the resistance is is manifesting itself in um, lack of engagement 
it can prevent you from getting your requirements gathered. You know, it mm-hmm. can prevent you from being able to give user stories to your developers. It can prevent you from being able to make any kind of positive movement towards getting the project done. So it's super important to make sure that you don't have to confront it in a why are you not answering my emails kind of way, <laughs> because that's just going to get more resistance. It's it's about nurturing the relationship um and yeah by by being aware and having that sensitivity to how people are feeling especially when there's change um it it just helps you to get things moving along um and it helps them to buy into the the success of the project as well um, which is really important and it actually being successful i bet it does i bet it does um it was it was um funny actually the other night when when we we attended an event in manchester and Bjorn, who's part of the collective and is in the network, he um, was at the event talking about digital transformation projects. And he had a brilliant analogy on any project that you're looking to deliver, no matter what it is, um, try and think of it like you're building a house for your family. And, you know, whether you're, you, you know, you've got to engage with your partner, obviously, and also your children, you've got to engage with what what it is that they want and he kind of likened that to sitting down with stakeholders and not just the board but all of your stakeholders across the business no matter at what level they're at to understand what they want from this change this technology yeah. this solution um and it feels a little bit like that with what you're saying it's 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 not just winning them over but it's actually making them feel part of the process, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree with that more. Um, I know we're going to talk a little bit about um, internal and external stakeholders, but that would definitely be something that I would echo that um, I once did a management training course. Oh, this is a long time ago as well, but it was one of the sort of ones where you go and stay on a residential and you right. have to do tasks in order to earn your dinner and then you have to cook the dinner <laughs> with the help of the kind of resident chef so you don't burn the place down um but uh and then you've kind of got a servant and stuff like that as part of your, your this management training and i always remember um you you learn best from when you do something wrong right yeah i always yeah. remember i thought we'd bossed this particular um task because the dinner was made the dinner was on the table and everything was brilliant and then we got some feedback at the end saying the chef wasn't very happy with us and I was absolutely mortified because we'd forgotten he was a stakeholder. And I was heartbroken. I thought we'd done so well and we hadn't. We'd done terribly. We hadn't terribly, to be fair, but I felt like we had. Um, but yeah, I just, I would never forget how mortified I was that we'd forgotten that he was a stakeholder. Um, it was when I was very young on my management journey. And it's one of those things that has stuck with me ever since. Um, to not forget the users, the the people that you never speak to. What do they really want? Because you always have the, the sort of um, front-facing person at the customer that you'll speak to all the time. But what does the person that's sat two desks away think? Yeah. Um, and if you don't find out, that could come and bite you. So, yeah definitely agree on that and it's not what the kids want <laughs> yeah and it and it is absolutely that you know you think about you know m- moving house these days you, you you sort of don't your kids don't get involved but really they should do and they should have an active part in you know where they're gonna which which room they're gonna have and stuff like that it's really important so yeah. then we'll, we'll let's let's jump then to talking about um you know managing those 
internal versus external stakeholders. How often is that is that something that you're you know involved with? How how often do you see that, and how often do you have to get involved? Constantly, yeah. Um, because um, because I do sort of consider myself as as a client facing PM, if you like, yeah, uh, or, or whatever it is that I do. Um, I always sit at the junction between um, reporting to the internal stakeholders, reporting to the board, to the sponsor, um, and also to the to the external customer as well. Um, mm. I, I like it. I wouldn't want it to be any other way. It's I love being with customers. It's the thing that that I enjoy about my job more than anything. Um, it's important to know your stakeholders, which is much like the analogy of knowing what the kids want versus what your partner wants and stuff yeah. like in the house. Um, because if you extrapolate that analogy, um, you've got, you know, your partner and your kids to think about, but what about what space do you need for the dog? And what about the suppliers? What about the bricklayers? What does he need? And what about the glazer? When's he going to come round? Um, you know, and what about the the neighbors who don't want mm. you to have that extension built on the back and yeah. all these people have got different agendas and they're not necessarily conflicting although they might be mm. um but it might mean there needs to be some kind of negotiation and a meeting of minds to get everyone working together um, yeah. to to an ending that's you know good for everybody um so yeah definitely knowing your stakeholders and knowing um what is important to them so what you report to the internal board is not necessarily what you're going to report to the customer because they've they've got different drivers that there's different yeah. things that are important to them um you know so it and understanding how they like to digest that information boards tend to like sort of one page reports with an exec summary maybe a little bit more detail underneath the customer wants something completely different um you know and they're more likely to just want to know okay if the timeline's you know this long so you know a, a foot long if you're <laughs> if you want to describe how far apart my hands are <laughs> how far along that path are we you know that what is left to do in the mm. remaining time is it going to be done you know what this what the customer is interested in um, and what the board are interested in are very different um so yeah knowing um who you're talking to what it yeah. is that that they're interested in how to have the conversations with them um it'll help build the relationship because you you're helping them understand things um mm. in a way that's important to them yeah um but it also means that further down the line you're not going to have those breakdowns where um people are saying you know you didn't give me information or you didn't include me in that conversation because you've tried to think about everybody and bring everyone to the table yeah really important isn't it really important yeah yeah absolutely it, it can't really be understated um, yeah. how important it is to just make sure that everyone's involved and everyone gets the opportunity to to speak about you know what they want what they're concerned about um, and then you can work through that kind of together as a as a group rather than waiting until it becomes a problem. Totally agree. And and again, this is this fits in so nicely to the series of podcasts that we're doing and how it fits in with Bjorn's kind of helicopter view of a project, but stressing the importance of this thing and then going micro, macro, I should say, into this and how it works and what are the the nuts and bolts of it so it's this is really good sarah really good um talking then uh, you know we, we we've talked about the importance of um 
uh, winning trust. We've talked about emotional intelligence. Um, you've worked for these big, you know, retailers. And we said some of them are UK, US. Do you see a big difference? And and before before you answer that, I think we as Brits, I guess, we, we kind of see the US very differently, don't we? A bit sort of, you know, uh, maybe overly familiar or overly friendly. But I know having visited the US many times, that customer service, it's its in their DNA almost. Yeah. Did you find that archetype shining through when you worked for that US retailer versus the UK? And could you, could you expand on maybe some of the differences that you've seen yourself? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, actually, because um, one of the first things that springs to mind of the the most noticeable difference that I um, was aware of, um, of working with teams out in the States is that a lot less of them had their cameras on than um, anyone in the UK. Uh, at the point where we were working from home during lockdown. And I don't know if that um, was as a result of them feeling less um, comfortable with sharing their backgrounds. Um, I'm a big fan of not having a fake background on. I'm confident and happy to, to sit in my uh, spare bedroom, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. now my office, yeah. um, and happy to, to sit here and let you in because yeah. I'm, I'm totally comfortable with that. Um, whereas I got the feeling that um, potentially a lot of other people didn't like that level of almost intrusion mm. of people being able to see into their houses. So I found that um, the UK was much more likely to have a camera on then actually it's not just the States. Um, I, I work with clients out um, in uh, Spain as well. And right. they, don't, they don't have cameras on either. Um, really? Right, so okay. yeah, there's, I think potentially some uh, kind of cultural differences there in terms of having cameras on whilst working from home um, was yeah. quite interesting. Um, but the, the customer satisfaction uh, point that you mentioned is um, that is really interesting because... Um, one of the biggest sort of um, things that I took away from working really, really close with teams out in the States is that CSAT, or customer satisfaction, okay. uh, <laughs> to the to likes of you and I, uh, like their it, yeah. CSAT scores were one of their um, project success metrics. Right. If their project was considered successful because it hit um, the schedule, it hit the budget, it hit the required quality, but the CSAT scores were poor, that was considered failure. Really? Um, yeah. So it was taken extra. And these were internal customers. Um, it, this was an internal onboarding um, onto um, a new piece of software. So this wasn't even an external customer. This was, these were all internal customers. Um, and it was that important to them. So yeah. even non-response um, on the customer satisfaction surveys was considered to be a poor result. Um, not a failure, but a, but was a poor result. Yeah. Um, and then obviously poor feedback, what was clearly not good. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it was actually built into the performance metrics of their projects to have an element of customer satisfaction and regular um, surveys sent out sort of on a monthly basis, um, asking about everything, you know, relating to the 
the project or the, the, the perceived responsiveness of, um, for example, help desk where it related to the project um, and, and things like that. So, um, so yeah, they take it very, very seriously. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to say the obvious. Do we not take it seriously in the UK? I'm, I'm sure we do. But is it not at the same level then? Yeah, I think I, we definitely do take it seriously in the UK um, and especially um, obviously projects where you're dealing with external customers. Mm. Um, I think where we possibly miss a trick is completely integrating it as part of the performance metrics. Um, we're very, very good on making sure we're hitting our budgets and things like that. Um, we tend to forget a little bit about that customer feedback um, and including that in our our performance metrics for and whether it's a project or whether it's kind of the business as usual because it it works in both um it's it's something that i think we could do a lot better on here in the uk to just really integrate that into the work that we do interesting um now we 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 talked about um agile versus waterfall um i i've you know i remember when we were we were placing project managers into projects and it was all prints and ssadm and you know structured methods and it was waterfall um but it was it was had to be so regimented i think that because technology is where it is now because every it feels like every project is more of a product i think that the us have led the way a bit with Silicon Valley and apps being developed the way they are. And by the very nature of you being able to update your apps all the time, that's kind of led to an agile approach to everything, hasn't it? Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, yeah. I, I think I haven't experienced anyone that's been absolutely um, sort of regimented on being, uh, for example, Prince 2. Mm. um outside of the public sector um and i haven't worked directly with the public sector as much as i have with um sort of commercial and retail customers um, but it does seem to be that that's where it's kind of hanging on um but i think even then there's a kind of a, a realization that projects when you take so long to get started um it's more often than not the customers don't really know what they want at the start mm -hmm. they need to yeah. see a little bit of something yeah. and then they'll realize what is really important to them mm. so the, the sort of big drawback with with the sort of waterfall way of doing things is that you have this huge lag at the start uh, with loads and loads and loads of planning and by the time you've actually started to deliver anything the customer requirements might have become clearer and therefore change and that's something that's then in that waterfall environment really not good yeah. <laughs> because it's sort of really constrained and, and changes something that's to be avoided like the plague whereas in the agile um way of working you accept that there will be change that's part of the development process and part of delivering the thing that i think when you're a customer focused project manager as well um you thrive on delivering something Mm. and you want to deliver value and that's as you as a person delivering value and also delivering them a product that does something that works um if it takes forever to get them anything because you you've got to wait until you've got through all the stage gates and things like that um it, it's not um it's not the most satisfying project 
um, to work on, let's say. Um, what I would say is that when you're doing kind of a client facing implementation project, which is the sort of thing that I do more than anything, um, there is a element of waterfall to it, I suppose, because there has to be a date. They have to know when they're going live. They have to know what the hypercare period is going to look like. Um, they need to have training in place and make sure that people have manuals and support and things like that. So there is an element of um, of waterfall because you're working towards a, a date um, and you you know need to kind of make sure that you've got things in place to to achieve that date before you can um, go live with with whatever the software is. Um, but it doesn't prevent you from having that more agile approach to the actual development to get that done incrementally. Um, so that you're building up as opposed to just having this big bang. Mm. And it's, 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 um, it's interesting that you talk about the public sector and how that has a different um, mentality to private sector companies you've worked for. I remember during, well, at the start of lockdown and sort of six months into lockdown, um, I, I, I worked with a lot of people in the NHS and, the amount of people that told me, well, do you know what? We've been looking at Microsoft Teams as an example for two years. We've had to implement it in a week. And we've, in fact, less than a week. And we've done it. And so many projects, NHS professionals, delivered so many tech projects in that 18-month period. And I remember speaking to lots of project managers and, and sort of senior-level people that said, you know, we've delivered so much tech in the last six to eight months that we just wouldn't have done pre-covid it would have the, the things that would have taken two years at least to deliver we've done it in 13 weeks and we've surprised ourselves and 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 this particular gentleman said to me i think the nhs is now changed forever because mm. they now can see what's possible and what can be done in a very very short space of time and it is just get that MVP out and tweak and change and tweak and change. And that's kind of what, that's kind of a, a lot of what's happened. That's, I feel like anyway, that, that COVID has kind of accelerated that men, and it's changed that mentality slightly, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. And actually when I think back to my, um, my interview for Washarch police, I do remember there being a question on that saying, because obviously it's an, whilst it is a desk job there can be moments when it's incredibly uh, high pressure when it's on when your job is on so to speak um and you need to get things done very very quickly um and so i remember the question being asked as to if you know the chief inspector comes and he needs something he needs a report from you in the next hour and you have to decide what to sacrifice to give him what he needs what do you sacrifice and ultimately, the, the correct answer is you just give him the information on a flipping fag packet if you're after. <laughs> you give him it however he needs it. But he just needs the information. It, it doesn't have to be on a printed report. It doesn't matter if it's branded. It doesn't have to have a video that goes with it. It just needs the information because someone's life might be at risk. And so they have they know when, when times are, you know, in case of emergencies, like during the pandemic, they have got the capacity to be able to switch that thinking yeah. and to deliver a pace and stop being so wasteful. Yeah. But in normal times, I do, I do have a lot of sympathy for them 
um I uh, I was a, for my sins I was a school governor for about four years even though I don't have children oh right okay. uh, so just to help out in the local community I yeah, was a school yeah. governor for four years and um the amount of scrutiny as to how you're spending that budget down to the last pound uh, having to review contract after contract for gas and electricity and water every year because you might say 50 pence I do understand when it's public money it's, it is difficult and they have got to, to prove that they've done due diligence things like that but it does make the process awfully wasteful at the start when they're spending two years thinking about something instead of acting so yeah well I was going to, you know, I reiterate that um, again, a, a sort of a COVID anecdote um, when um, I was working at another company and we were talking to a lot of senior level stakeholders in the NHS. And again, I think it was the the, the sort of um, CTO of a big, um, I think it was a council or a, or a trust. It might be a trust. Um, and he, and he had been campaigning to, pay for microsoft teams for for so long and they eventually got it and he looked at the 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 expenses on just meetings pre-covid to to what it had been in the 18 months over covid when still you know we private sector were back in offices the nhs still weren't they were still working from home but the amount of meetings they were doing over teams and the amount of money they were saving from people traveling to different sites it was frightening to 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 hear about it and think well okay well th this is this is it now we 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 have gone beyond the debate of can i work from home and am i going to be effective i think we're talking a lot about that at the moment in um it feels like a lot of people talking about the four day working week yeah. um flexibility trust they're talking a lot about um, how your working contracts is going to change if you work from home and no no, no software to manage what you're doing, um, which is amazing, really, to where we were. I don't think we'd be having these conversations if it wasn't for COVID. Yeah, definitely um, not. And, and I think also the talking about how to manage those people working remotely. So it, it fit, when I'm talking to companies now and people about jobs, we've still got this kind of pushback from from people who, well, I know I, I, I've been working from home all this time. I, I want to continue working from home. But there is a danger that people will be left a bit isolated. And as a, you know, HR, I've got to think about people's mental health being being at home Um and I think that's got to change. And this leads us to our sort of almost our final point, really, isn't it? It's about fractional teams and how you engage going through a change management project like this. How have you found it yourself? And and how how do you what what do you see works and what doesn't work? Yeah. So, like I said, I'd I'd used remote teams for ages with me always working remotely for customers well before um lockdown so um the the biggest difference was that um we did a lot of conference calls back then and not necessarily video calls we had a few video calls um but the other people didn't have a video back then so it yeah. was a one-way street um so um 
having group video calls and making sure that where we, unless there's some real reason why not to get people's cameras turned on um because I, you know i'm no angel if my camera's not turned on there's a there's a very good chance i'll get distracted because <laughs> someone will email you or someone will team chat you and you'll yeah. just look yeah. and once you've just looked you're gone you've mm. you've lost at least 10 minutes of the conversation um so i think getting people um on a, a video call when you're in you know imagine you're in different parts of the world on a video call um with cameras on it just keeps people engaged but it does help um you know if you are um just having for example a stand-up meeting in the morning say what you're working on or, or anything you're stuck with um just been able to see people it yeah. just helps so much um in terms of seeing if people look like they're struggling just looking at people's body language um it helps them build the relationship because when you're onboarding new team members you know they can feel so not part of the team if they're not um able to see them um yeah. when they're when they're um you know in calls and meetings and things like that so so definitely getting cameras on is is a massive um plus if you can do it at all um i do really think that where possible you should try and get together in a room um i, I just think the work that can be done not in terms of right i'm going to sit down and i want to write code or i'm going to write raid logs or i'm going to write requirements for this next solid six hours it's more about the bouncing of ideas around that cannot be done when you're sitting at home um co-working sessions are all right um but there's a tendency again for people to um, mute themselves and they don't speak when they're just thinking about something whereas when you're sitting around a room working together there is that just oh just a minute i was just wondering about that thing can i just mm -hmm. ask you yeah um and and it's just that sharing of ideas and sharing of inspiration um that makes such a big difference when it comes to to a team working together um and really pulling together to get the project you know delivered on time um so i definitely think they're kind of some some good ways of working um one of the um real things that i've um notice when it's um so when we're talking about fractional teams it's not just about being physically not located in the same place um but actually working on different projects okay. um so it's not um a dedicated project team they're um just a pool of resource and you can dip in and out of them um when there is a priority to, to do work for you or, or other projects um so i think that the real key thing with that is just being aware of the whole portfolio of priorities um in addition to whatever project you're working on because there'll always be something else that's happening you're very unlikely that there's only one project going on at once um so just to make sure that in those situations where there are other priorities um, within the business um that you're not accidentally over promising um when there's not the resource or not the capacity there to deliver um, to make sure that you've got the resources lined up to be able to actually complete what you need them to do within the time scales that you've got available to you. Um, so yeah, being able to manage kind of the time when people are not dedicated to the project um, is kind of another thing to keep in mind as well. And, and how do you um, pick up when somebody's struggling and they're working remotely? Is, it, is that quite hard to do? It can be. Um, at, we tend to have daily stand-ups, so um, just 15 minutes um, mm. just to say what you um, worked on yesterday, what you're doing today, um, and anything that you're stuck on. Um, it's a good point just 
to kind of visually and verbally check in with everyone um, to just be able to see if someone looks like they're struggling, if someone's body language or their tone of voice is suggesting that they're getting frustrated, they're asking the same questions multiple times mm. um, and seeming to get nowhere or taking a lot longer to do tasks than they initially said. Um, yeah. They're just kind of the little things that I might think, do they just need checking in on and just um, make sure that everything's going all right? Because with the best will in the world, certain people won't speak up in a group. They just never yeah. will. Um, and they need you to reach out to them because it might be an hour or two after that stand-up meeting that they think, oh, I'm really, really stuck. And yeah. I don't know what to do. And I've been trying really hard to figure it out. And they need someone to kind of step in and say, shall we find you someone who can help? Maybe I know someone, maybe I can speak to the developers or, you know, um, line you up with someone who can maybe answer that question for you. Mm. Um, so I think things like that and just having um, the different kind of check-ins. So whether it's a small um, short meeting with a full group or just being able to check in one by one with people to make sure that if there's something they'd rather ask you privately, they've got the opportunity to do so as well. Um, there are kind of um, good ways to just make sure everyone's staying on track. That's good. I like that. Brilliant. Um, now, I, I come to the sort of the, the end of the podcast a little bit, or the end of this one, at least. Um, and first of all, you know, thank you for giving me the time. It's a Monday evening um, and, um, you know, we should be having tea and watching, I don't know, start a quarry or something like that. But thank you for your time, Sarah. I do appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Um, what what advice would you give um you know young sarah from 10 plus years ago when she's deciding what she wants to do and where she wants her career to go um and i guess that's a that's a question to you know your younger self but also at the same time i, I guess it's advice to anybody else in a similar situation um you know maybe maybe a, a you know you bump into a neighbor and that neighbor says, well, yeah, my son or my daughter is looking to, uh, you know, get into analytics or data or tech or project management. What advice would you give them knowing what you know now to take into their sort of, you know, career or their first role and decide which way they want to go? Yeah. So I think I've probably got a, a few different kind of bits of advice. I think the first one is to try and, spend as much time with people who have done what you want to do as you can if it's not paid work experience whatever you have to do just a little bit of time to just get a feel for what it is um, that the people are doing mm. um, in the field that you want to go in um, I've worked a lot with having placement students working with me so they've taken a year out of university and come and work with me for a year um, some of those students have gone on um, after graduation to get the most incredible careers um, and I'm incredibly proud of them all. Um, they just came and did a work uh, a year working um, in industry and spent a year with with me and my my teams and and it's such an amazing way to get um, really really valuable real world experience and um, so that's quite a practical um, tip of something that that's um, that would be really good to do. Um, I think the um, probably the other one is a bit more of a kind of mindset tip almost. Um, it's something that someone told me actually when they were getting made redundant of all things. Um, and 
it was someone uh, in my team um they were they were uh, removing a layer of middle management in a, a role that I was doing and so he reported into me mm. um and he was my my best um sort of team manager um and I was absolutely heartbroken that he was being made. well he, he'd elected he'd taken voluntary redundancy and I was absolutely heartbroken that I was losing him and I was really really worried about him um because to me at the time redundancy was like the worst thing in the world I couldn't think of anything more terrifying than not having a job and he wasn't bothered at all and he just said to me um I'm always going to bet on myself I'll be fine and I was like that is the most amazing mindset to have just bet on yourself you've you're resourceful you can do it don't worry that you know maybe you should have had you know done done a a degree in this or you should have gone and tried to get a job with that company just you've got what it takes to to be whatever you want to be so if there's anyone that's kind of looking at you know their career right now and thinking I hate it I'm not happy I don't want to do this anymore but it's the only thing I've ever done and I'm worried don't be just just do what you've got to do to make it work for you um so yeah I definitely think there's a bit of a a mindset piece there as well that's brilliant yeah absolutely I mean you know it it comes down to how you've been brought up who you're influenced by um and obviously you know your parents and stuff like that but um I think kids in school these days, I, I, you know, I've got three children, one grown up who's not really a child anymore. He's like old Jamie, who's 28. Um, and I'd be lecturing him a lot. And he looks back on it now and with fond memory, he tells me <laughs> of dad, you always do telling me this, this, do this. Be, and I always used to say, just be, I just be better than me. You know, and, 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 you know, you can be who, you know, whatever you want to be. I've got a 15 year old daughter now who's, you know, halfway through her GCSEs and I'm really struggling to know what she wants to do. Um, and I guess in the tech industry, we know the stats are very, very, um, you know, heavily weighted towards men. Yeah. Um, we want to, to have a more diverse um, industry, but it's, I think it's, I think tech still really still has that, um, you know, unfair uh, view that it's you need to be a techie to be in tech. And I don't think you do these days, do you? Um, you can you can transition and you can you can be in project management or business analysis if you're not technically minded to be able to do coding or programming. Fair enough. But there's so much more that you can do, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And um, it's it's quite appropriate that you brought that up on the week of international women's day uh <laughs> of course I'm... I'm sure that it was very deliberate absolutely um, but yeah it's um yeah you definitely don't I mean when I was 15 I wanted to be an actress I still starting to do a little bit so you know there's I'm sure there's hope for me yet um <laughs> I went to university I studied history because uh, my dad wanted me to be a lawyer uh and go and get a nice steady job for the council I wanted to do something artistic um, and we kind of met in the middle because I liked history. I liked stories. Um, so I went to do history and I was at university thinking, what on earth am I going to do when I finish? Because I don't want to be a teacher and I've not made it as an actress yet. So what <laughs> am I going to do? Um, but I 
love people's stories and I love people and I love working with people. So that's kind of how I ended up at the police um, to help people. And so that's my dad, funnily enough, was um, an IT manager. I, I had no desire to go into IT at all um, because I'm not interested in the. T- I probably could have done coding if I wanted to, but I just wasn't interested in it. But I've come to it from a completely different way, which is about making customers happy and making people's lives better through giving them tech. Um, so you don't have to be tech techy at all. You just have to understand what people's problems are and listen to them and try and speak that to someone who does understand the tech but doesn't understand the customer. And if you can be that person, you can have a fantastic career in tech um, without ever being able to write a SQL query or be able to write a bit of code or do anything like that at all. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it, there's, there's plenty of time to figure out what you don't want to do. She's only 15. She'll be fine. <laughs> and that is a brilliant way to end the podcast um thank you so much and you you, you you're right um she is only 15 and she doesn't need to work it out just yet and i'm kind of probably like your dad i just want yeah. her to be happy and successful in whatever she does um and, I, and i've taken the approach we're going a bit off piste here but um but that's okay and i've taken the approach or the mindset of, and I said this to her a, a couple of years ago, you know, when she started talking about what GCSE she was going to choose. And I just said, um, cause she, she, she would say, well, I'm good at this and I'm good at that. And I said, well, don't worry about necessarily what you're good at. I said, if, if I can give you any advice, I went, I was good at geography. So ended up doing an A-level in geography, but then hated it. Mm. So it's not necessarily what you're good at it's what you enjoy and what you like so what do you enjoy and what do you like well I enjoy this and I like this and I went well you know go and do that and all the all your GCSEs are really are kind of um you you, if you can imagine you know it's like a funnel isn't it and here's all of your different subjects that you've got to learn for the first few years of your high school life and it's a step up from your primary school And it's about spreading you. You've obviously got these, you know, maths and English, of course, and some of the sciences. But then as you get into GCSE, it's it's just like, right, what do out of all of that, what do I really enjoy? Right, well, I'll enjoy those. And then your A-levels, if you decide to do your A-levels, what do I enjoy out of the GCSEs the most? Right, well, it's those two. Right. Until you get down to one thing. And then just, if you want to do a degree, do a degree. If you want to go and get a job go and get a job just just do what you enjoy because while you have to be at school you want to make it enjoyable that's what I've yeah and I don't know whether that's right or wrong but we'll see well I I think it's really interesting actually because um obviously I really care about education which is why I was a school governor when I didn't need to be um (laughs) so I it's something else that I'm really passionate about um I think that um when I was young the fear of having no money for my parents drove everything. Um, we weren't from a particularly well-off background. I grew up on a council estate in, a, in an old mining town. Um, and I was born in the middle of the um, miners' strike, um, which will tell you how old I am, so I try not to work that out. Um, <laughs> but the, the fear of not having money drove all decision-making and it drove a lot of um, what was kind of... Um, the way that I was funneled into the decisions that I made when it came to education because there was 
seemingly no alternative than to get a degree because if you didn't have a degree you didn't get a good job and if you didn't mm-hmm. have a good job you didn't have any money and if you didn't have any money you'd struggle to have anywhere to live and it was this horrible like cadence of all the bad things that will happen if you don't go to university yeah um and it's not like that now and i think we as um as a civilization are very much more aware and open to the fact that you can make money doing anything absolutely mm. anything at all um there is money to be made and there's absolutely loads of money in the world um it's just held by a few people so um that old mindset of it's absolutely imperative that you've got to go to university it's just not true anymore um i'm looking at taking on an apprentice um as a as a kind of junior project manager to support me um i have specifically said um to the the um the apprenticeship company um that I'm really interested in people that have done a bit of hospitality um, and retail work because they've got a custom focus. I'm not, I don't care if they've got no A-levels, not interested, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. What, you can teach skills. You can teach skills easily, but it, what, it's what you are as a person and what you like and what you enjoy. That's the important thing. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's plenty to go around when it comes to, to that kind of thing. 100% agree with you. 100% agree with you. It's, it is about the... The person's beliefs and attitudes and how they how they act with other people that's the most important thing and um, and that is a lovely time and and part to to end the the podcast sarah thank you so much for your time tonight i really appreciate it um and we hope to have you back on and of course we welcome you as as part of the true worth collective um and we hope to help you find work in the future, to work with you in the future, deliver projects in the future, um, which I'm sure we'll do. And you've just started that journey, haven't you, as, as working for yourself and, and looking to sort of stand on your own two feet and have your own business. So we yeah. want to help facilitate that and, and make you successful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, no, that sounds great. Um, listen, really, really appreciate it. Thank you again. And um, yeah. We'll, we'll look love to have you back on a future episode yeah that'd be brilliant thank you so much and thank you for inviting me no worries it's a pleasure awesome thank you so much sam bye for now see you soon right stop the recording <laughs>Thank you for listening to this episode of the True Worth Tech Talks podcast. It means a lot. And if you got this far, we want to reward your patience. Send me an email to sam at trueworthconsulting.com and just put the word Eric in the subject field and your home address in the mail. I won't keep that data or store it anywhere, I promise you. But I will send you a special gift as a thank you. And any feedback will be greatly appreciated. Tell us what you think, what you want us to be talking about in the future episodes, and we'll try to make that happen. Now, if this gets really popular, we might have to change this message. But for now, let's see how many people actually listen all the way to the end of a podcast. And if that's you, thank you. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next one. Take care. Bye for now.